Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Stacy Pullen is the product of dance music history. Growing up in Detroit in the 1980s, he heard techno as it was happening, whether over the airwaves from the electrifying mojo or at the legendary club The Music Institute. He logged hours in Derek May's Transmat Studios, worked with Kevin Saunderson on remixes, and collaborated with Chicago transplant Shea Damier. At the urging of May, Pullen eventually wound up in Amsterdam in the early 90s, and Europe has played an integral role in his career ever since, whether through the artists he champions on his Black Flag imprint, or the Ibiza sets that have lately made for season highlights. Between fabric gigs and the intricacies of major label contracts, it's been an interesting journey, which he relayed recently to Ryan Keeling. So the first thing I wanted to start with, you've had quite a uh, long-standing relationship with London, where we are now, Um, and I guess I wanted to ask why you think it's worked so well for you here down the years. Well, I would would say the the always constant change of uh, the music scene, the constant change of the people that's coming through London. I think that, um, you know, London, even before I got to London, you know, the guys before me, I always told me, you know, the London is like, you know, pretty much one of the leaders of, of hearing good music. The, you know, one of the first places in Europe the music gets to, you know, with being with so many different races and cultures here, you're able to hear everything coming through here at any given time in a moment. You know what I mean? You know, and then I have to put it in retrospect that we just celebrated in the U.S. We just celebrated the Beatles 50 year coming to uh, America. You know what I mean? So things like that, when you get, you know, when when the U.S. looks at things like that and then you have, um, you know, because I was really big monumental, you know, we, we always thought of, of coming to Europe, I mean, coming to, to England and sort of making it here. Once they say you make it in London, then, you know, you pretty much head on up from here on out. So um, it was very much like the mark of success, if you like, from the yeah. perspective of guys yeah, from yeah. Detroit, would yeah. you say? Yeah, because, you know, especially, it, you know, one of the things, one of the reasons why is because, um, uh, you know, it's an English-speaking country. So it's easier for us to, to come over here and be able to do our thing, do interviews, play our music, get around. Um, that's just from the cultural standpoint, you know. But at the same time, you know, like I said, those guys before me, they came and, you know, they came to play clubs like uh, my, my first gig was Lost with Steve Bicno and Cherie. And then soon after, and once that happened, you know, I still got pictures. That was 95, something like that, you know. Do you remember much years. about that? Yeah, I, re- I got a picture from it. I, just, I remember this. I got a picture of me playing and this big 
parachute like draping over the DJ booth. You know, and here I am, young, twenty something years old. You know, looking at this photo. You know, and fresh off the plane from Detroit. You know, and it was one of the monumental gigs for me. You know, I guess another kind of key one down the years for you has been uh, Fabric, and yeah. you were kind of a what I'd sort of class as a, a big part of the club in yeah. the early days, and the kind of relationships continued. Uh, what is it about that place? What is it about those people that's kind of like you know that's um, held this connection? Well, I think I think the reason why is their staff. You know, they're music heads, they're clubbers, first and foremost, you know. And then whenever you got people that's running a club that are not in it for the the money aspect or the business aspect and in it for the love of music, I think you're going to have a you're going to have a, a longevity relationship with your the DJs and your artists, you know. Um, and so much that they have to offer, you know, I mean, it's, you know, so many different rooms, you know, they build the brand. You know, I did one of the uh, the Fabric 14 releases for them years ago. It was a great, good success for me. I think I was maybe one of the first Detroit guys to do something with them. And um, so, and then, you know, they have this constant evolving clientele that's always revolving through the door. You never know what you're going to get, you know. Mm. So it's always, it's been it's been a good run for me there. I mean, I, I just played there a couple of weeks ago and, you know, it's, it's really good. I mean, is that something that's been particularly noticeable to you, the kind of evolution of the you know, the crowd, if you like, or the club or? Yeah, 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 definitely. You know, it's funny because whenever I, whenever I play Fabric and whenever I tell people I'm playing Fabric, they have, they have mixed reviews, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's an institution. You have so many other clubs that's opened up since then, but at the same time, I feel that I've had such a, a successful long run with these guys that you know, whenever they ask me to come play, you know, I'm always I'm always about it. You know, it's it's always a good thing, whether it's room one or room two, it doesn't really matter with me. You know, because I know that I'm gonna have a good night. It's successful and. The crowd's really gonna go for it, you know, and it's it's still got a little underground to it because most of the clubs now, like if you if you play in most of these clubs, you have the stage and everybody's behind the DJ booth and hanging out. Especially in room one, it's like you can't even see the DJ up there. You know, it's it's you know, you have to look over a gate like you're like, you know, looking in and like you know, what's going on up there? He's playing tunes or whatever, you know. So <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's kind of cool that there still has that that dark feel underground effect to it. And I guess um, a little bit before the fabric days, there was the uh, connection with Mr. C in the yeah, end, yeah. also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Richard, yeah, Richard's a really good good, good friend of mine. Um, you know, that was the probably the first time I played on a function one as well that I can remember playing at the end. Um, you know, and and me and Richard, we're we're really good friends to this day. I see st- I see him quite frequently, and. I had the pleasure of um, releasing a couple of tracks on his Plink Plunk label at the time, you know. So, you know, I used to stay at a studio when I came over here when I first started doing things at the end. And um, a couple of years ago, he told me a story that one of the first times I played there, I was with, I played in the room A, Ron Trent and Shea Demir played in, in room B. And he said that, you know, they were kind of kind of ticked off that I played in room A you know, who's this young comer, you know, come and play, <laughs> come and play in room A, you know, and he, and Richard was like, well, it's not really anything of an ego. It's just the music fits more in room A than it would in room B. You know, I mean, the way room B is, it's a small little lounge feel. And then room A is more of the techno, you know what mm. I mean? So he was just telling me how, you know, and all these years later, 
you know, he tells me this and for, for me it was like kind of interesting to hear the things that goes on behind the scenes, you know, but it, it, it was cool. So I guess around this time, I'm just trying to uh, plot the timeline a little bit because you were based in Amsterdam for a while, weren't you? I was you? based in Amsterdam, yeah, yeah. Uh, I moved to Amsterdam in 93. 93. Yeah, 93. So... That time was when I got around to London first. You know, my first gigs was London and and Paris and Switzerland and all those things, you know. That was when I released my first track on um, Fragile Records, Derek May's subsidiary of Transmat. And um, it was a perfect time for me to come to Europe at that time because it was either stay there in Detroit and, you know, still find myself as an artist, you know, be inspired with the Detroit sound. Uh, come over to Europe and be a teacher and also be a student of, of, of the music, you know, getting the chance to hear what wasn't coming to Detroit and getting the chance to teach the people in the European community about the Detroit sound. Mm, so sure. it was, I was a teacher, pupil, student at that time, you know. I mean, where would you say you were kind of at in your development as an artist around that time? Oh, this is the time when I was hanging out with Derek May, so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so this was... Um, the de- developmental was it was it was good you know he inspired me to to be an artist you know and then you know he 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 really worked me I, to say the least you know and then I started doing stuff with RNS Records that was you know had to deal with Transmet at the time and you know recorded my album pretty much here in Europe and in, in Detroit so it was it was the best of both worlds actually I just wanted to uh, stay with Amsterdam for a moment because there's something in your biography I find quite interesting that you said that around that time you found the, the scene there quite competitive lots of DJs kind of doing a similar thing and I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about what the atmosphere was like in the in the city around that time yeah well at that time Amsterdam was was probably the biggest leader in parties music coming through there you know i mean in a miles radius radius you probably had six or seven record stores and every record store they had djs in them day in and day out you know we got to the point where we started going straight to the distributors before it got to the stores that's how competitive it was they used to have bags for us waiting for us especially me and Derek when we used to live over there you know bags for us at the distributors before it gets to the store. Set up a little, small little section for us and let us run in there for hours and just go through stuff before it hits the stores. It was the same way when we got to the stores as well. But Amsterdam had such a healthy scene that every, they had so many different parties and they still do. Mm. They had so many different festivals, so many different clubs. The Roxy was there. You know, all the young DJs were, even the people who worked at the stores were DJs and playing all these festivals and playing all these parties and everything. And But it, everything revolved around Dimitri, Raimi, and Marcelo. These three guys were like Derek, Kevin, and Juan. Right. Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, and everything revolved around them. So they had their crew and each of them had, you know, the, it was like their brand that they did, you know. And and it was funny because we sort of we came we me and Derek coming from Detroit we sort of kind of fit in with all of them so they wanted each each three of them they wanted one of us you know what I mean so that's why I mean it was competitive because we would do a party with Dimitri and his crew one day and then turn around and do 
another club with Marcelo maybe next month. And then all of a sudden we all would do a big festival together and they'd be fighting where well, I want Stacy, I want Derek, I want this, I want that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, I found it interesting as well that you, I think you even mentioned it earlier that you spoke about that time in terms of um, student and teacher and you were learning things from Europe and you were kind of teaching things to people here. Do you feel like there was a knowledge gap on behalf of European like techno fans at that time? I mean, were were people coming to you and like asking lots of questions? And yeah, yeah. People still ask me a lot of questions, yeah, sure. regardless, regardless of where I go. But I think, I think more for me, it was me more learning because they had the access to Detroit music and beyond. Me being from Detroit. I didn't really get a chance to hear a lot of the European stuff that was coming out because we were so immersed on what we were doing in Detroit mm. that we were kind of our record stores and the way we thought nobody else's music mattered but us because we want to be innovative. We wanted to do, not have any outside influences, which is good. But at the same time, you know, me coming over to Europe, I got a shit. My eyes were opened. You know, I got a chance to learn, learn about a lot of different labels even if it wasn't my type, my type of music, you know, I got a chance to listen to a lot of music that I would have never thought I would be listening to. I got 12 inches that I, I can't believe that I bought that. You know what I mean? I listen to them now. I'm like, I bought this track. But yeah, but at that time, it was good to hear that music. And I probably did play it because at that time in Amsterdam, that was a big song or that was the sound that was really influenced at that time. But I still added my Detroit flair to it, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was it was an interesting time from that perspective. I mean, do you feel like Derek kind of shared the same attitude? I mean, obviously there were quite, you know, he had quite regimented views as to how Detroit sound should be constructed. And, you know, it's been stated many times down the years that he yeah. had like very strong sort of like family yeah. principles. Yeah. But, you know, did he uh, share kind of a similar attitude, you know, to being open and like absorbing these things? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that's that's us being from Detroit, you know, and yeah. always wanting to st- stick to our guns and thinking that, um, uh, like I said, nobody else's music matters but ours, <laughs> you know, because it was like, you know, we wasn't, I mean, we were not into the music. It kind of just happened mistakenly, you know. It didn't plan on it being that way, you know. And when he was over there, he told me, he's like, well, I have an extra room in my apartment, and he kind of needed somebody to be over there with them to help help with the uh, the state of affairs on what we were doing in Detroit and how he was being perceived as an artist as well, you know. So it was, it, I came along perfectly to help add fuel to the fire because he's a firecracker, <laughs> as they say. So just how far back does your relationship with him go? Because um, I guess you went to see him play quite a bit before you yeah, met him for yeah i would say 89ish 1989 is probably when i started getting close met him and then me taking my demos to him and him telling me always closing the door in my face work harder work harder we at transmat we do not allow any samples in any record you have to do everything original <laughs> were you sampling what was I sampling? No, were you sampling? Um, I did. My first release, I did actually sample an African drummer, this Babatule Olatunji. Goba, Goba, Ba, Goba, something like that. And the reason why that came out on Fragile is because it had that sample. 
He was like, Transmat does not allow any samples of any sorts in any of its music. That's why if you hear like the first Carl Craig releases that was on Fragile, BFC, all that stuff, he, you know, he sampled a lot of like 80s music or just weird sounds or whatever. But then more of the uh, the original stuff, like they did Chaotic Harmony and, and, and um, some other tracks that they did that were completely original, no samples allowed. So... Coming from that school, it was it was a, a challenge because, you know, you got samplers right here in front of you, you know, and you want to be able to, you know, toy with them a little and bring a little creative juice out of them. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know? I mean, do you recall a time at which you felt like you were kind of getting there and he wasn't maybe shutting the door in your face? No, because, you know, when he would leave out of town to come maybe to London, I would be studio sitting with Jay Denham. You know, so I can remember one time, though, when he came back, I was out, I was studio sitting and he came back from out of town. I let him listen to this track and he was like, you use the DX100, the Yamaha DX100, which is like the signature transmat sound. He's like, I like it, but Jay should have told you that you shouldn't have used that sound because that's my sound. <laughs> it was a particular preset. Or... Right, 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 exactly. He was like, I like it, but that's that's my sound, man, you know. So it never came out. And I, I think I listened to it, you know, maybe a couple of years ago on cassette. I'm like, yeah, okay, I can I can understand it now. Years now, when you look back in retrospect, you can tell that. But it was me just developing and finding out and experimenting trial and error in the studio. Was there a time that you sort of recognize um, in retrospect that you had found your feet, you know, that you were sort of moving towards the sound that you would now recognize? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think doing remixes for Kevin Sarnison, when we had a little remix team, that sort of kind of put the ball in motion because actually, even though Kevin, I mean, even though Derek gave me the first time in, in, in um, helping me develop as an artist, Kevin was the one who pretty much published my first works. You know, it's funny how it worked, you know. Once I, you know, put out a, a, a track on Kevin's compilation album made in Detroit, and then we did a remix for this R&B artist called Karen White, and it was all on MTV, Clubland. It was a radio, it was a, a dance show that was on TV in America. Then I heard it on the radio, on an R&B station, but it was the house version. Once I heard that, then I realized, I'm like, okay, well, yeah, maybe I, I do have something here that I need to continue. Mm-hmm. And I just need to keep working at it a little bit more and finding my own sound and finding my own niche. I wanted to ask about maybe the origins of this term, um, second wave. And, you know, you often spoke of in terms of the second wave Detroit artists. When did you become aware of this being a thing, if you like? When did people start, like, when was this coined, like? I think that once we, like I said, once Kevin put out this compilation album called Made in Detroit, it was because you had this, I mean, Kevin's label, KMS, was, you know, flourishing then, still is now. And when they put out this, when the first generation guys put out this compilation on, they put out a compilation album on 10 records, the Detroit Techno Sound. That was considered the, the the you know the first generation all those guys, and then the second generation had myself, Underground Resistance, Kenny Larkin, I think Octave One, 
Santonio Echoes, Anthony Shakir, and all those guys. And a lot of the press got a hold to that, and they was like, oh, this is the second generation sound. You know, it kind of just naturally happened that way. Was it the UK press by any chance? Yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Did, Did you feel a part of a group? I did feel part of a group because I can remember being there on Techno Boulevard in Detroit, Gratiot Avenue, and Derek had his loft in his studio. Kevin had his studio and loft, and Juan had his studio and loft, and they were all connected to each other. It was one building; they were it was all connected, you know. And I can remember just going down there and just being down there for days and days and days, and not having to go anyplace else. And if I'm not making music, I'm just hanging out. You know, Kevin's working on an inner city remix. Derek was, you know, running his mouth <laughs> or working on some track. And Juan is down there being, uh, you know, watching Deep Space Star Trek, something like that. <laughs> you know, they all had their distinctive personalities is basically what, what that comes to. And, and I'm down there hanging out with Shay Demir and, you know, and we're, we're down there just talking. And, you know, and so the energy was just electric being down there. So that was when I really felt that. I finally got respect among them because I remember recording shows off the radio of these guys and I didn't even know them yet. Doing my own edits of their mixed radio show because I wanted to be I wanted to be down, you know? And once that happened, you know, I, I kinda felt really good and, and you know, it was it was uh it's a long time coming because it was I would say it was two to three years before I even got in good with these guys before I fit, you know, from the time that I first started being interested in making music. Cause I left, I left the university to come home to make music. Mm-hmm. So from that point to the time me being in the studio with those guys, it was like two or three years. Among your generation, if you like, what do you think it was that stood you apart from your peers? What was your signature? What was your style, if you like? I think my style was the fact that me living in Europe, that was, I think that was the, the breaking, not going to say the breaking point, but that was the point where I realized that, yeah, I'm from Detroit and my roots are still here. That's my inspiration. But there's also other sounds that inspired me to take what I do in a different level, to, to a different level, you know, being inspired by, you know, because we grew up with, with, house music chicago house music still too you know but i think it was my my ability to adapt to the different sounds other than just detroit i mean you got some djs who will strictly give you a detroit techno set nonstop, and in my days of that i've i've, I've did it and, and i still do it occasionally but at the same time i feel that you know Music has no boundaries. And I learned this probably from Kevin more than anything because he had a taste of the, the commercial success. And he and he realized that, you know, yeah, music is, you know, what we do is what we do. But there's a whole nother generation out here and a whole different uh, genre of music that also inspired him. Mm. It's interesting. Um, as I'd read that you were discussing the album you mentioned, you released on RNS and Transmat mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. '95 as being um, this kind of amalgamation of the sounds you're absorbing from yeah. Europe and then yeah, yeah. your kind of Detroit roots. Right. I mean, do, do you remember specifics of what you were taking on board from Europe? Were you into particular artists or particular um, styles, if you like? Yeah. I mean, I remember 
like my my first track called Water Dance that leads off the album on uh, the Silent Phase album. I remember doing one version in Detroit, which was like the demo version. And then I did the other, the finished version, the album version in Belgium, RNS Studios. That's when I heard the difference in my sound because there was this rolling 909 snare drum. It was just like a, you know, a 16th pattern snare drum that was completely European. It was no soul into it whatsoever, (laughs) (laughs) but it was just robotic, you know, pickup, you know, ad lib to the next verse. And that was the stuff, that was the kind of stuff that I was listening to in Europe, you know. But if you listen to the melodies and the emotions behind it, it was still Detroit. So, you know, it was kind of the, the best of both. Um, so you'd mentioned that you recorded the album as Silent Phase. And then I guess by this stage, you'd been working as Cosmic Messenger, Bango, uh, yeah. among others. I kind of wanted to ask, because it, it seemed like this was um, this was a prevalent thing around that time, and artists would have many, many different yeah. aliases. Yeah. So I'm interested to know, like, what was the culture that would, you know, what, why would people feel the need to, for ambiguity, and why pe- would people want to hide behind pseudonyms? Well, that was, you know, I mean, we, that, I guess that's the old uh, underground resistance mysterious being from Detroit type guys that we were, that we are, you know, we wanted the music to speak for itself. You know, us being artists, yes, that was what we did in our bedrooms. But basically the music was what gave us the voice. You know, it was, it was a big mystery and and that's how it is in Detroit. You know, we, we kind of wanted to let our craft speak for itself instead of us being out in the front forefront because it was underground music. You know, we were based, you know, making music in our bedrooms. So it wasn't about the big budgets that you have now and people's face all over the magazines and stuff. We didn't intend it to, uh, us to be that way. I think that it was to see different sides of us as well. And we were, you know, just among creative geniuses over there. So we kind of wanted to see what was could we do and what mood we were, you know, because we had so many different, you know, monikers, you know, we would do, you know, a remix and we would get into it in a different frame of mind. And then we would come around and, and turn around and be an artist and do something totally different. So it kind of went with that. Mm. I mean, is it maybe somewhat disappointing for someone like yourself who has come from what would be an underground place and with these quite set ideals in mind and then the way that things have developed where you turn it turns to exactly what you said right. it becomes the right. the cult of celebrity if you like is that is that maybe a, a disappointing uh, development to no like i don't you? look at it as disappointing because you know i mean nothing stays the same that's the evolution you know that's you know, different market. I mean, I wouldn't say different market, but different generation. I mean, if anything, I mean, yeah, people always say keep it underground, keep it underground, you know. But, you know, and you can still keep it underground, but still, I mean, you have to, this, I mean, this, it's a business too, mm. you know. And a lot of us are a lot older now. You know, we have families, we have kids, you know. We, But at the same time, as long as, you know, you still stay true to what you've been doing since day one. Then there is there is no 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 sense of entitlement that I have to stay in this this realm of, of things. You know, technology now and and you know the way the generations have changed and shift. I'm actually kind of 
feel good that I'm able to see the whole thing change, mm. you know? Because, you know, if I if I would have if I would have saw the same thing, you know, years ago and then it probably, you know, I probably wouldn't have been as excited as I am now because I'm still trying to stay relevant <laughs> right now. Yeah, I mean, I guess in terms of your personal development you reached a place where you signed with a virgin subsidiary and right. um, released an album so yeah. you know there was definitely that uh you know sense of progress if you like yeah i mean that was that that time was was it was a testy time for me as an artist and for the industry in general because that was at the point that you know that was the beginning of the millennium you know yeah you know so that that got to the point where it was underground, but at the same time, you know, me being signed to a, a major label, I had to compete. You know, I had to, yeah, I had to compete with you know guys who were making it big at that time. Like, um, you know, I would say artists who were in dance, like Basement Jacks. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, here I am from Detroit, and Basement Jacks, they you know do this big track and you know festivals and top twenty on you know, Radio One or whatever, you know. Yeah. And here I am, underground, you know, Detroit guy, you know, reading Miles Davis's autobiography, <laughs> being an artist. <laughs> I mean, did you um <laughs> did you feel a, a certain amount of pressure to maybe tailor what you you did somewhat? Not at the time. Because the you know, the guy who I was working with at the time at Virgin, he was I mean, he was looking after guys like Fotec. You know, and Fotec was dark, mm. you know, moody, artistic. So I didn't feel pressure to do anything on, you know, commercially viable. But after they said that I wasn't going to have a, a U.S. release and then they dropped me after the first album, that's when I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> mm. You know, it didn't have the commercial success that they would would they that they wished that it would have had. And, you know, and that's when it hit me. It didn't. And it hit me. To the point where I'm like, yeah, this is the music business. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's not like, I mean, I'm doing this for, you know, myself anymore. You know, I'm doing it for a big label. And you know, even though I still had creative control over what was to be released, but it was the fact that, you know, I wasn't that type of artist. You know, mm -hmm. I wasn't trying to, you know, hit the charts or, you know, wasn't thinking about getting a U.S. release. I was just pressing record. Do you feel in retrospect that you could have done that differently? I mean, was there an arrangement that could have kind of worked for, for both sides um, sort of thing? At that frame of mind, no, I, I yeah. probably wouldn't have do it, did it uh, any different because, like I said, it was, you know, I was at that point where I was finding myself as an artist, but also wanting to, I wanted to hit a, a niche of people that were purist at the same time. I had Four Hero, they did a remix, you know, it was in, and that was what was, at the time, that was what I was into, that was my frame of mind when I was recording the album, you know, and then I had, then on the dance arena, I had Dave Angel, you know, mm. remixed a, a track as well, and I was listening to, you know, Carl had put out his album, Kurt DiGiorgio put out this really cool album on Mo Wax when it was out, so that was my mentality of doing really underground music based on organic expression mm. the deal kind of had a, a knock-on effect didn't it because you were then tied to the label for, yeah. the, for the next decade yeah with 
that have been quite a big contributing factor in kind of your right. your next time in, right. in in production right development yeah i mean especially especially for the label because i i licensed black flag to along with the whole project and black flag's the label you yeah. started and yeah. it was kind of the late 90s yeah, I guess. yeah 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 and so i did a it was more me licensing me and my label to the major label and I remember my lawyer told me, he was like, you know, this word called in perpetuity. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'll never forget that word. I'll never forget that word. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah. You know, the month, the payday was good. But that word right there haunts me forever. You know, and it wasn't until recently until I was able to like, OK, kind of squeeze my way out of it a little, you know, because they're not going to do anything with the you know with the label or the album and they're far beyond me now you know yeah. so it kind of i guess led you to concentrating on djing for the best part of 10 yeah. years yeah i kind of got jaded a little you know because it was you know it was like you re you, you receiving a, a a call from the doctor uh yeah you're gonna have to come in because uh you know we need to do more tests and you know something's going on when i got the call from the label oh we're not gonna you know we're not gonna take the option but we're still gonna keep the rights i'm like what <laughs> really yeah so i mean that's 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 the business you know uh, so when you uh did wriggle free as you phrased it did you have quite a clear idea in your mind as to the, the direction you wanted to take the label in yeah because when i first started the label i, I kind of wanted to do a, a a label that was only my releases sort of what Jeff Mills have done with Axis, you know, Moody Man has done with his label, you know, only releasing their tracks. Then, you know, after the whole thing with the major label came and went, I realized that, you know, I've I fell in love with DJing. I heard so much music, so many different artists was coming out at that time, still is to this day. And I said, I'm like, well, you know, Maybe I should toy around with a little bit of different because I mean I was I didn't make enough music for the the label to flourish and have a release every month or every couple of weeks, you know. So that was one of my main reasons to sort of start looking for other artists to be on the label. And one thing that I did say when I when I got the label back up and running is um, I said I'm like okay, you know I want to get other artists to to come in and you know because you know. This is what a art, that's what a label does anyway is release other people's music. I also didn't want it to be strictly another Detroit label where I only release Detroit artists. And that's where I kind of, you know, made the conscious effort to, you know, find artists outside of Detroit, you know, because we had, you know, we have and still have a lot of labels in Detroit that release only Detroit music. I mean, we got enough labels like that. So I want to do a little something a little different to and bring a little bit more of a universal appeal to the label. So with that in mind, tell us about some of the people you signed over the last few years. Um, the people to sign over the last few years have been a lot of European, Engl no, not English, but um, Spanish and Italian guys, man. They've just been coming nonstop. I, had a, I have a guy, Sergio Fernandez, who had a really big track last year 2012 
it it um it really it did really well. Tony D, Nathan Barato, who's really making some noise now. Elio Rizzo, he's um he used to do um the residence with Carl Cox at Space in Ibiza. I have um myself of course and then Paco Morato, which is another artist from Spain, Brothers in Progress, which is Italian guys. And then I got some of my friends to do remixes for. Nick Vanchuli did a really good remix for my Circus Act track a couple of years ago. And Martin Bertrich did a, a, a remix for me on my last release. Yeah, my last um, single, my last single. Who else? Um, then I got some younger guys who are not as well known, but they got good music, you know, and I'm not really trying to concentrate on artists that already have a name. It'd be good that I, if I can, you know, get some music from them. And, but at the same time, you know, you know, everybody have the big artists, you know. And, and what are you looking for in a, in a new artist? Um, someone, I mean, someone who kind of who always had their distinctive sound, you know, they're not really trying to sound like everybody else. I mean, first and foremost, I want to be able to play the track, you know, because this is a singles dance market. And, you know, if I if I feel that I can play the track, I'm 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 like the A&R, you know, pretty much, you know, which is a good thing. But it's also I can see that it's it's a challenging thing because I might not like something, but if I were to release it, it might have. You know, I might build a new crowd or some other people may like it. But, you know, that's that's just how I am. You know, if I don't if I can't play it, then, you know, I mean, I turn away more demos than I actually, you know, put out. And so, you know, it's, it has to be something that I can play, something that's got some groove to it, something that's got some, you know, a little emotion. But, you know, I think more importantly, I have to visualize myself playing it. I mean, it's kind of no nonsense when it comes to that, you know. Mm. Now, how about in terms of your own stuff? I mean, there was obviously such a long period of time between releases and you, you did have quite a long break. And do you feel like you're in a, a good place now with it? Are you happy to be, you know, getting your music out there again? Yeah, I'm, I'm in a happy place, but I'm still I'm still in a transition because I'm doing a lot of stuff software based and I still have my hardware. So I'm still trying to trying to find that medium where because you know a lot of the 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 software stuff is you know from a technical point of view is kind of quite simple and then the hardware stuff comes in and kind of warms everything up and you know me being you know sort of i mean me being old school still per se i i still love that 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 analog feel you know but i'm i like being able to be on the go you know, I, I like having the studio on the laptop and bring my MIDI controller and being able to do those things. And, you know, so and then, you know, with so much music coming out, you know, I'm, I'm still I'm still trying to figure out not figure out, but I'm still trying to get a hold to what's what's next on the agenda for myself as well. You know, I don't release everything. And a lot of artists now, they release so much music. It's I mean. And I tell these young artists, like, you don't have to release everything, you know. I, I speak about it with some of the some artists, and you know, and he's like, "Yeah, I'm doing a track on this label. I'm doing a track on this label. On this label, I think now it's doing tracks on different labels is, is a validation now. When it's not about just you know being an artist and creating your sound, you're kind of just spreading out your sound on different labels, and you you know, you you hope to be down with that label in case of something you know and it's i kind of that that worries me 
you know, when a, when an artist just releases everything, you know. And, you know, a lot of these are a lot of songs now there. I mean, it's a different market. Now, I understand that, you know, it's a different generation. But a lot of the songs that I hear are not even they're not even 12 inch tracks. You know, these are tracks that you can hear on an album and, and really hear an artist, you know, and really hear what they're going through and, and feel the the emotions behind what they're doing. You know, but like I say, it's a different market now, the different genres of music. You know, I'm just I still have that, you know, that etiquette of having the the artist have that voice. You know, when you spread yourself out too much, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of hard. Possibly dilute the message. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I just wanted to finish up by talking a little bit about uh, Ibiza because it, it sounds like you had kind of a, a standout season last year. Yeah. Um, you were playing a lot with Marco Corolla. Yeah, yeah. I just kind of wanted to ask, what's the common ground between you guys? Like, why does that work? <laughs> well, first off, me and Marco, we we have mutual respect for one another, first and foremost, because he's been doing it just as long as I have. Probably got a couple of years on him, but you know. <laughs> but we both have seen the generation and musical shift. I mean, if you listen to his music and his DJ sets back in the 90s, he was playing, and I was playing, you know, 132 BPM tracks. You know, Italian, he's Italian. I'm from Detroit, so our, our, our bass is techno. You know, 132, and I listen to the stuff, and I listen to old sets, I'm like, wow, we used to play that fast? Wow. You know, and I heard sets of him in the same way. So, and now he's, you know, sort of, been able to adjust to the generation shift and I've been able to adjust as well and we understand music has changed but our roots are still techno you know and I think that's where we've been able to see eye to eye without directly talking to each other about it Mm. you know from a musical standpoint that's that's you can tell that's where we both I've been able to understand that shift. That's more of an analytical view of it. From a more personal view, he heard me play at an after party at BPM Festival a couple years ago. He played his music on party, and then the after party was at this like dive bar strip club in Mexico. No strippers were there, of course, but <laughs> <laughs> just to clarify, to be clear, politically correct. And we all went together. We was hanging out afterwards. And then I decided to play some tunes, you know, and I guess he heard what he liked. <laughs> and he realized that I'm like, oh, he he's kind of not only does he play techno, but he plays good music. You know, he's he's seen he's understood that, you know, the music and how it's changed and, you know, a little bit more modern sound or whatever. And when he was getting ready to embark on this journey that we now know as Music On, he actually personally called me up and was like, hey, I want you to come along and and, and go on this journey with me, you know? I mean, it's one thing when you got the guys who, his people and my agents and booking agents saying that they want me to play a party but he personally caught me himself and was like, listen, man, you know, I feel that this is going to be big. You know, I got my own night now in Ibiza. You know, you're the first person that, you know, I'm calling to let you know that, you know, I want you to, you know, come along for the ride. And I was like, OK, all right. You know, I mean, 
Why not? Because I not I don't really know too many Detroit guys who, you know, had you know, I wouldn't say a residency, but you know, to to be able to embark on something that's you know really influential in in our dance music scene, you know. So I was I was you know I was kind of you know flattered by that he called me up and you know wanted me to to get get on board and we did the opening the first the very first opening together you know it was it was okay it wasn't great but it was okay but you know he was like okay fellas this is the first one so you know let's we have no room but to grow from here you know and ever since then it's been it's, it's been a good ride yeah I, I heard there was a particular night in august that was um talked about as one of uh, the sets of the summer that you played yeah you remember that yeah, yeah, what, yeah. what was going on that night well it was and you know summer august and ibiza man i mean it was crowded you know i actually that was the room that was the time that i played i played in the main room and he played on a terrace and it's usually very difficult to play at the same time he's playing but this night I I kept him there. I was proud of myself, you know, because it's not easy. Um, and but if the main room was was really electric when when I when I played, and you know, people got video of it, and they were sending it to me, YouTube and it, and everything. And um, I think it was more or less of my energy that I was giving off to the crowd, and the tune selection that I was given was probably a little different than what he was doing, you know. I mean, because I can't. It's no sense of you know, doing the same thing or playing the same sound when you got one one venue, you know. So, you know, I kind of gave it to him Detroit style, you know, with a with a little modern feel to it and, you know, and it really went off. I mean, when you you know, when you got a bunch of, you know, young Italian and Spanish kids <laughs> who are just really ready to have it, you know, at the peak time of the season, I mean, you really can do no wrong, especially if you've a, a seasoned DJ who's been doing it for a while, you kind of, it's kind of, you know, I wouldn't say automatic, but, it, you know, it just comes natural. Mm-hmm. 